Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Bing, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Professor Akiko Takeyama about her book, Stage Seduction, Selling Dreams in a Tokyo Host Club. Professor Akiko Takeyama is currently Professor of Anthropology and Women, Gender and Sexuality Studies at University of Kansas. The book we're going to discuss today was in fact published in 2016 by Stanford University Press and was shortlisted for 2017 Michelle Rosaldo Book Prize, Association of Feminist Anthropology in American Anthropological Association. Professor Akiko Takeyama, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me today. I'm really looking forward to this conversation with you, Bing. Um, so Akiko, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about of yourself. Sure. Um, I am a, a professor in Women, Gender, Sexuality Studies at the University of Kansas and also the director of Center for East Asian Studies at the university. Um, but I was trained as a cultural anthropologist, mainly studying about the gender and sexuality issue in contemporary Japan. And so that is my field, and I have a history to get to there. So starting with brief history of who I am, um, I was born and raised in a mid-sized industrial town called Hamamatsu, Shizuoka, which is about 160 miles south from Tokyo. I was raised in a three-generation family, and I always felt something uncomfortable about though I didn't really know what that was. And that discomfort kind of grew as I went to school and I started to work in the Japanese corporation. And eventually I, I came to the United States and I started to study gender, sexuality, and uh, I got the language to unfold what my experience was, what especially made me feel uncomfortable in that society, in the family, school, and uh, work. And eventually, I realized how the personal experience is, as the feminist scholars pointed out, political title with larger political, economic, legal, medical, and other issues. So, um, that's really brief history of who I am and how I got interested in this field of study. I, uh, well, I think that's quite interesting to learn about this uncomfortableness <laughs> of your growing up experience in Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really curious that how come you would study the hosting club as 
the subject of your book. Actually, I found your thesis, which is also based on, I think the book is actually based on your PhD. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So how would you come up with the idea on this research? Sure. So um, as many people start with, uh, I started to study about gender as a social construction. By that, I started out with studying about uh, the women, especially in the post-war Japan, and how women, especially mother figure, had the central for the new modern nation building after World War II, and it's still pivot of the nation building and economic development. So like women figure has been always kind of a symbol of the society and of the nation, and yet they were not really given political, economic, um, uh, those structural powers to exercise. So I studied about this um, construction of femininity or the gender of women in the social context, in the historical uh, context of of post-war to contemporary Japan, and especially focused on uh, younger women. This was studied in the 1990s, or actually late 1990s. So I really realized how the women today and at the time are caught in between this traditionally embraced symbolic figure versus social reality in which women are expected to go to post-secondary education and uh, work and um, just to be a basically superwoman, do all these things, you know, family, friends, um, work, and a societal contribution. And uh, while I was doing that um, gender studies focused on women, I realized men are not excused from the gender construction of gender and the society, men and women uh, created in the gendered way. So gender is rather a system to divide population into mainly two uh, sexes. Um, and at the time, late 1990s and early 2000s, Japan was facing a particular kind of a challenge after birth of bubble economy. If you are old enough to remember or experience how Japan was economic powerhouse in late 1980s, um, quickly um, um, faced the, the next challenge after birth of bubble economy. Um, uh, first few years, it wasn't so much a negative impact immediately in the societal uh, settings. However, by 1990s or early 2001, the economy struggled and then the social discourse has changed from celebration of these solid men in Japan as the corporate warriors and heroes of economic miracle in Japan's post-World War recovery uh, quickly turned into be an object of criticism. Now they do not really have creativity and entrepreneurship or like motivation to do better job. And meanwhile, at the time, 
the host was gradually getting attention as the new breed, somebody who capitalized on their own body, sexuality, and talent. And so anyways, um, after I studied about women for my bachelor's degree thesis, I focused on masculinity as a social construction in relation to gendered other, like women, and also sexual other, like homosexual men, and the racial others, like men in other countries, especially um, uh, developing countries like Southeast Asia. And uh, so for my P- PhD dissertation, I was looking for uh, intersection rather than studying women as a group or men as a group or vice versa. I wanted to see how gender itself as a social construction and how people interact in in everyday setting and how power dynamic can be played out or reproduced, challenged, negotiated. And uh, for that research, I thought at that time, early 2000, First, I thought um, men's aesthetic salon, basically men's beauty salon, which was emerging uh, market. I thought it was an interesting uh, ethnographic site since most of these clients are young men who care about their appearance, mostly like removal of unwanted hair or uh, uh, facial uh, skin care and so on. These are new things for men to take care of. And meanwhile, most of the technicians or uh, practitioners are women. So I thought that might be an interesting site to study new concept of men's beauty, health care, and public health, and how gendered being negotiated on, on the site of aesthetics alone. But as an anthropologist, I needed to observe and participate. It's called a participant observation to, to get closer to the people who I study and get really their perspectives. Um, but as an economic commercial institute, um, the men, none of the men's aesthetic salon allowed me to do my field work due to the confidentiality issue. And so I was just like um, wondering in, in Tokyo, what can I do if I cannot do this research? And I just ran into this a big billboard filled with entire east exit side of uh, Shinjuku Station, which is the largest and busiest station in Tokyo and Japan. Uh, east side is closer to the red right district. Um, and yet it's just a dynamic, different kinds of shops, restaurants, and uh, electronic appliance stores uh, located. So anyways, in the daytime, like uh, kids, families, and adults go to that area for shopping or transit the trains. And uh, so it's so visible. This billboard was filled with the male host who are beautified, if you beautify their appearance and having a, like the hand gestures to welcome, especially women. And guess what? It became so controversial about this billboard. And so PTA claimed for the, claimed the city to take them away. And within a day or two, the entire billboard are removed. And, and that was quite shocking to me Although I'm from Japan, I'm quite familiar with the culture, 
in which, especially in Tokyo, like topless women's images are almost all over the places. Like you could encounter those images in the commuting train, for example, because men with the sports magazines or newspapers not just report uh, sports results, the game results, but also had an advertisement for the um, sexy magazines on which they had like a topless woman. So my point here is, yes, like women's topless um, images are ubiquitous and taken for granted for mainly like male audience or masculinized society. And yet these men who, who try to cater to women's sexual desire or romantic desire, they are quickly problematized and removed in the name of protection of the public health. And uh, so this incident really made me think about the significance of the host club, which really challenges existing notion of sexuality, who should sub to whom, for example, or what is the, the uh, pu- public uh, acceptance of these kind of sexual commerce. And also this um, sex inversion in terms of the sex role was really intriguing to me how this flipped gender role is uh, asymmetrically um, played out because of the existing social norms. Men should be this way and women should this way. Therefore, mere sex role uh, inversion wouldn't just be the um, um, symmetrical inversion of, say, the hostess club where women sub for men. So on top of that, I thought this new that the concept of romance has been always something like a Western or individualistic concept since Japan modernized uh, in 19th century. So like uh, uh, the the, the um, uh, antidote like uh, the marriage based on romantic love has been a kind of modern concept and practice. Uh, in contrast to arrangement marriage. So this romance is, um, uh, romance values individual choice of freedom, autonomy, and kind of freedom. And now this concept, which has been imported from the West, is commercialized and commoditized in this service industry. So all of these things made me really um, fascinated about this project. That it's very rich detail on on the thinking around the hosting business in related to Japan as a society and also its public image and public value and also the uh, the concept of of romance and as your the book of your title suggests the art of seduction because you actually talk very detailed and and rise very beautifully in how these concept and the relationship between host and client um created this art of seduction and i just wonder i mean really i think i think if we go back to the book because in the book you mentioned about how you and conduct this ethnographic work. You are you you said you are using 
a way of a, an approach called affective it's ethnography, which is also implies because because the hosting business is about affective affect affect, and that is also because post industrial Japan is heavily focused on service sent industry. I'm just wondering if you can say a bit more about the affective ethnography. Yeah, definitely. Um, so affect was sort of new to me to use as analytical lens. Um, so I'll briefly mention about how this intellectual development impacted me, how to conduct my field work. And so like in Western, Western academia, like anthropology is often located in the social science, which means you study something observable and testable to find evidence and then um, create the knowledge of truth. Those tends to be heavily relying on like behavioral studies or language to delineate um, the meanings um, out of it so that uh, we could test those hypotheses of meanings. And yet affect like emotion, feelings, and these things are much more enigmatic and oftentimes um, not a center of the research analysis in the social sciences. Um, but I thought that was actually the central for my project and also my book. And I originally noticed how this works through my own bodily experience. So for example, um, at that time I was living in the Midwest. Uh, I was attending University of Illinois. And then after graduation, I moved to Kansas to teach. And then these Midwest uh, areas, I my bodily reaction, for example, to shopping is quite undramatic, I would put say. So go to the same grocery store, probably go to the same aisles, most likely grabbing the same items over and over and again. And uh, for better or worse, most of the uh, commodities stay as they are. Meanwhile, when I'm, I go to Japan, I feel I am so excited just to, to expose to window display, for example, or seasonal stuff, so the seasonal flavor of chocolate, or seasonal veggies, uh, fruit, or new flavor of this and that. It just So this example shows even you, who you are, would be the same person with the same body, depending upon where you are space-wise and time-wise. The way how you experience the space and time is quite different. And so obviously when I was in Japan, I, I was so much more fascinated about the shopping and uniquely it occurred to me, I wish I had more money so that I could enjoy this and that, which doesn't really occur many times uh, in the United States. And also this like red light district is a specific place, even within Japan, it's often referred to as sleepless castle, for example. It's just like where the people's desires, wishes, and uh, despair 
uh, intermingled and played out in the space, usually not in the verbal format. Nobody really would say, overtly, I feel this way and that way. Um, it just felt and uh, it just let go. And uh, so this experience really made me think about affect as a central figure, not in the space wars, but also in a specific interactions in the commercial setting. And when we think about a, a commercial or advertisement, they usually use minimum, minimum linguistic um, communication. It's more evokes people's feelings of inadequacy or some sort of feeling so that that motivates consumers to act out on the desire. So um, that was, that became uh, central to my uh, field work. And uh, surely enough, I was mentally and uh, I think academically, intellectually prepared to this study as a PhD student. And I went to a Kabukicho red light district in the evening because the most of the host club business get going after 9 p.m., which is quite late for me. And at the first uh, field work night, I thought I'm going to just uh, observe how people l- look like. How, how do they um, hung out in that space, Kabukicho red light district? And I didn't really even uh, intend to go to the host club or actually intentionally I tried not to go to the club because I didn't know how the business works and what if I I get into trouble. So I intentionally put plain clothes, no cosmetics or and then really a plain uh, accessory and so that I looks like somebody who doesn't really belong in the space and then most likely people would leave me alone and uh, but a host on the street spoke to me from the behind and i was quite quite frankly surprised why me there are so many more attractive women who are ready to go to these clubs not me and i also got confused and also um, didn't know what to do I was there after all to study host clubs and here's a great opportunity. Somebody invited me to go to his host club, but should I go there or not? And, you know, these are tiny things for the outsiders, but there could be a really big emotional drama for somebody who first steps in this uh, site and experience this. But eventually using this, my personal feelings and experience and uh, doing reality check with other female clients, for example, how they felt about the space or going to the host club, what it means for them to interact with the host, all helped me to conceptualize and also theorize after all um, these feelings and emotions affect really uh, the real commodity that are capitalized. It's not necessarily a particular kind of fashion, particular kind of drinks, a particular kind of uh, conversation, but this deeper experience somehow motivate these women to go back to the host club over and over again, even if it's really expensive to, to go back in the same way. 
these male hosts are highly motivated to become a number one host and dreaming of that, they tolerate every day, we our uh, work, attentive service, and uh, excessive alcohol consumption. So um, the affective ethnography for me is to um, encapsulate this kind of non-verbal, non-linguistic aspect of human experience and how it can be um, manipulated, that can be communicated, that can be utilized to to attain something for for somebody's uh, particular purposes. Well, uh, well, it's interesting that you frame this effective ethnography as a non-linguistic way of uh, expression. Is more is it because they focus more on the feeling, and even though they can only be expressed in in words, but still not the same as the traditional way of ethnography. Yeah, I think in ethnography words, um, I don't think of. Of course, there are some studies about emotion and feelings are socially constructed as well. And looking into, for example, um, the meaning of the happiness uh, across different culture, for example. Um, but to think about the Japan or non-Western context, actually, to me, many society have this kind of tendencies not to overtly, verbally communicate, uh, of course, like U.S. and other Western countries might have that uh, um, um, tradition, especially uh, the civilization itself is reaching this kind of knowledge, um, transcendental knowledge rather than um, spiritual transcendency. But I see more non-verbal aspect in the communication, especially like in Japan, where people cannot really say no, for example, even they want to say no. Um, and also the word such as like reading the air, kuki wo yomu, that exactly means that people are reading into behind what's expressed or behind what is um, embodied. So as such, I think people's communication goes beyond this superficial verbal uh, meaning. So for example, a host would say, could say, I love you to his clients, but for the clients, they are not, you know, the clients are not stupid. They would say, you are saying the word to every client essentially, <laughs> aren't you? And that's true. So the, here, the word doesn't really mean much. So the host actually creates different circumstances to prove or show his quote-unquote love or care by sending text, like personalized text, for example, every day or every hour. That is more powerful than just saying, simply saying that I love you or setting a, a, a creating a setting in which uh, other quote-unquote helper hosts are on the table and the main host might excuse himself. And during his absence, 
other helper hosts might say to the client that he might not be really overtly showing his feelings to you, but he's always, always talking about you. He definitely cares about you. You are a special person among his all other clients. And this kind of third person credential means a lot more than the main host, I love you. So when I say nonverbal communication, these include it. I see. I see. I, I think I, I think being a Japanese yourself kind of helped advance this type of ethnography because of the social, the cultural background that kind of molded the character of, of, yeah, molded the character for, that's facilitate this kind of ethnography. Yeah, that's definitely, that's one of the, like, part of the reason why I wanted to briefly share my background because uh, researchers' positionality in terms of race, class, ethnicity, nationality, or experience, age, these things to really uh, impact on the interrelationship on the field. So I could do particular kind of research as a woman trained in the U.S. and not coming from this red-white district, but somebody else who has different a set of backgrounds might have a different access, different uh, conceptualization, different experience as well. Definitely. I think for me, it may be, it's, I can, I can, I think I can resonate with that feeling, but may not be that straightforward. And because I still, I have done uh, ethnography work myself, so I still have to ask a lot. Oh, definitely. Yeah, that's a, actually, it's really a good point because one of the findings I had from the host, male host, is they usually target Japanese women. And a couple of reasons are one, yes, the communication wise, they need to share cultural references, right? What it means to be loved, for example. So if you don't share the cultural references, it's much harder to have nonverbal communication. Um, Yeah, so I think um, you're on the spot. I think um, when we go back to the book itself, I think I find it interesting that the content actually is kind of in the order of the stage, like Tokyo, and then the background, you explain the hosting business, and then the actors and actresses, like the host and the, and the clients. Did you do that intentionally to make it like a staged play? as the title suggests, or have you, because I think you mentioned in the book you study perform, performativity, you know, right. perform, performing. Performativity. Performativity, yeah. Yeah, yeah um, thank you for picking up that. I thought that might be a subtle if you are not really uh, reading into or paying attention that uh, book structure organization. Uh, when I wrote this book, I wanted to write in a way that, like movie or storytelling, and so um, to me, my informant slash character, the the character development 
was an important aspect. So like uh, as a reader, I thought people might want to know a little bit more about these people who appear in my book so that they they become more empathetic about who they are, what they do, and what the struggle they face and experience. And so while doing that kind of storyboard exercise, um, I also realized how Japan's host club, which is physically located in a particular space, really tiny bit of the space when we think about the entire Japan, but that could have a kind of ripple effect, not the host club as the, the center, but it's kind of more um, microcosm of the Japan's service-centered um back then neoliberal economy in which men and women are definitely expected to be um, aspirational, seeking better future in their own way and capitalizing on their own talents, uh, human capital. Um, so both way, I um, try to make it more storytelling. So intentionally, the book was staged in a way to unfold this stage, spatial stage, but also these characters or the people in the book. I'm glad that I asked the question. Um, so if we go back to the hosting business itself, I think as you previously mentioned, like what really pushed those women's go back to the club over and over again and also what makes the host um, and I, I actually really curious why the business still flourishing I think you the framework of hope situated in your book is really important because you mentioned Tokyo as a futuristic city and society that invites the host to come in and then to realize their dreams, to realize the hope. And then also the hosting is also to sell the dreams as the hosts talk about how the hosts describe their business. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more on how you theorize this home and future framework. Mm. Yeah, uh, thank you for the the, the deep <laughs> question. Um, to me, the hope is really a center of modernity and modernization process, not only to Japan, I think in many other societies in which people are expected to move forward constantly for better, prosperous futures. Um, so the theorist theorized modernity is um, a state or the condition to break out from the past or tradition so that people feel moving forward. And that could be applied to many different settings. So even most quote-unquote modernized or developed countries still need that kind of meta-narrative to be hopeful. Otherwise, you maintain the status quo or the same, i.e. stagnated. 
And so this modern society, and especially capitalist society, you constantly need uh, growth, right? Like, uh, uh, so um, Tokyo is, to me, is uh, such an excellent example for that. Partially one, uh, it it uh, recovered the post-World War time miraculously um, and then sensationalized. That was a, 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 a told story so many times, but that story no longer shines in, the, in the today's society, but always constantly brought something new. So for example, Tokyo is always a construction to do something. And if you go back almost every year, you see new uh, subway line, new uh, commercial district or renovation or some sort of new facilities opening up. And one of the biggest and a good example of 2020 Olympic, those events brings people's hopes and dreams to make Tokyo, for example, again, really attractive city to the world. And along with that line, uh, a lot of commercial activities and people's um, hopes and dreams, again, evoked toward that effort. Um, So that big story of hope and dream had been utilized for a long time along with pretty much economic development in the immediate post-World War II time, World War II time. But today, since the birth of bubble economy, Japan's economy has been stagnated, as it referred to as lost decade, lost two decades, or by now lost forever kind. And meanwhile, labor has been uh, flexibilized and the precarious labor became pervasive and uh, um, uh, ubiquitous. And to me, this gap between hope and precarity are expanding just as much as social disparity is growing. And uh, the have and the have not have quite a gap although the gap would not be as large as, say, the United States, where like 10% of the population holds 90% of the social resources, but still the gap is expanding. And so it's really hard to be hopeful. And so one of the discussion I had is hope itself is a class marker today. If you are hopeful, you are still taking the challenge and moving forward versus if you give up that, you are the social loser and um, there isn't much social network to to protect uh, or provide for those quote-unquote social losers. And in this narrative, people have a choice to be successful, hopeful individual and people also can fail but in the name of self-responsibility. And this kind of sociality is quite a recent construct since um, Japan used to be more a socialist nation, but uh, the, the country cannot log- no longer support that kind of social welfare or um, other costs. 
So to me, when I had this、uh, research in 2003 and 2004, not only Japan were under the、uh, Koizumi administration, hope was much more capitalized and shining. The same way in the U.S. under Obama administration, people much more hopeful and、uh, excited about the future. But in both countries and other parts of the world today, the situation wouldn't be the same. That makes me、um, want to ask: Is it the reason? Is it this reason that why the hosting club only? I I mean, there in other areas in Japan, there were there are also hosting clubs, but obviously, it just the biggest in Tokyo in Kapukicho. So I'm wondering why it. It was not the same as in other in other areas of Japan as in Tokyo.、Mm. That point, that's a good question. One of the thing I found is Tokyo draws more people for the hope, and as I said, Tokyo is、uh, staged for the hope and、uh, consumerism. And so the people come to Tokyo often time for the hope and dreams, and quickly find there isn't much job opportunities, for example, but there are easy. Access to sex-related、uh, work for men and women. That's one thing. How Tokyo attract more of the people. Another is、um, the anonymity in Tokyo. And、uh, one of the thing I noticed, and I think other people too, is Tokyo is so packed. So many people surrounding you, but most likely you know nobody, or even you know you don't know exactly. Who they are, what they do, or where they live, people usually don't really invite other people to their tiny Tokyo apartment, for example. And as I said, this anonymity is important because this、uh, sex-related business is still stigmatized. So if it's a rural local community in which everybody knows everybody else.、Um, it's really hard to go to or utilize this kind of service. I see. Yeah, I think I I understand that. I think if you have given us so much, so many great case studies in the book, actually, and on the host side, do you think、um, Koji Yoshien have you have you categorized them into different type of hosts? Because from from the narrative you've given in the book. I felt to me they felt really, although they shared the same goal just to reach, to to be rich and then luxury life or anything, but they actually doing it in different ways and they treated their clients in different ways. I just wondering if you, have you ever categorized them, put them into, and even Shin, it is it the is was he the one who who talked to you at first. Oh, oh shit! Yeah, yeah, yeah. On the、uh, on the street, yeah.、Um, it's I haven't really interviewed the so-called、uh, host who conduct quote unquote ore ore business, which is like an 
me, me, me kind of business. So they put these hosts themselves at the center and um, intimidate or look down upon their clients. And uh, those hosts, a particular host, and some women are attracted to that kind of business style. And uh, but unfortunately, <laughs> I didn't have a chance to to talk with those people. But as I think uh, I mentioned in the book, Koji tried to some extent that kind of business. So like when he had a sex worker client, um, she wanted to to him to reciprocate her feeling. And whenever she asked, what do you think of me? He was vaguely answering, I think, like, what do you want me to think of you? And the, the woman goes, I'd like to be loved. I'd like to be thought of as special. And he goes, like, well, why don't you make an effort to be thought of as special? And as such, he was kind of pushing uh, the envelope to, to her end. Um, but more about Oreole Ego hosts would put women in the position to to um, to sacrifice themselves for their hosts. And some women interpret that kind of self-sacrifice, as I introduced in Chapter 5, as pure love. <laughs> And uh, though the women tend to think that their selfless efforts for other person is the real love, and the more of the self-sacrifice they make, the more they keenly feel that they are in love or they are loved, or at least they are transcending worldly way of thinking, which is me first, um, so that was interesting to me. But most of the, the hosts I interviewed are either providing, quote, unquote, like a friend business, friendship business. So it might not necessarily too sexual, but, uh, quote, unquote, dating, going to movies together, shopping together, um, dining uh uh, and so on and so forth. And when I attended, give, give a company with a client who was dating with the number two host. This is, um, I believe, uh, I introduced a woman in chapter two. We went to a department store and the, the host really outstands because of the fashion, the way how they take space to present themselves. It just draws attention from the people. And uh, actually drawing attention at an expensive department store made the client feel that she is the one who is dating with this attention-deserving host. So... um, as I said, it eventually, no matter what the host types are, whether it is ore ore, aggressive or mimi, uh, business, friendship business, or um, a, a courtship style business, my finding really emphasizes that it eventually comes back these women's self-satisfaction. And without that kind of satisfaction and wanting more for the next stage, it's the key mm. 
for these women to go back again to the host club to see these men and then support their sales and make them top ranking hosts. After all, the credit indirectly comes back to these women. Yes, I think you mentioned that in chapter four or something. Like this kind of visiting to the host club is actually an act of self love. Like it makes me like. I, I have to say, you know, I've seen many tragic cases um, between the hosts and uh, and their clients because yeah. many... Yeah, yeah. Being, if it's okay, like I wanted to just add a little bit, the self, women, the self-love sounds like a selfish, but after all in society, women as a daughter, mother, wife, they provide all these thankless labor, like a care labor, emotional work, to their family, their uh, colleagues, and uh, so on and so forth. Um, but they are not really acknowledged for the work. They even not really being told uh, how good they are doing because the, the, the default is doing okay. When they fail to, to, to do the modeling work, for example, they would be accused for the luck or negligence. So after all these women, self-love is more like a self-care which they miss in their day-to-day life. I think I well, I definitely agree with you on that. And I, I, I remember I even had a discussion on this whole, does housework count, accounts for like, you know, the same labor as men, what men does what men do uh, out in in the world, outside world, I think, you know, they definitely work, they definitely labor as well. Just they're not paid in the monetary term, but it doesn't mean it's really a gendered issue. And that's why it caused the gendered pay gap. Um, I, I think that's definitely valid, that point. And, and I do think these women deserve to be loved. And it's actually tragic to see that they need to go to hosts to to find it rather than get it from people around her. They're so close by, but they could not provide that for them. And I think for men, the same. Um, I'm not saying that's definitely, but for women, it's definitely a gendered image saying oh yeah you should do this you should do that because if you're a woman you if you're a mother then you should be doing this you should be doing that because you're a mother but no one will accuse because it's a man your father then mm-hmm. you should be mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't yeah, know father, fatherling is a secondly uh yeah job <laughs> for most of the men right so i think when you say the client i think in here is just for women, uh, say women, female clients is simultaneously the producer, director, actual self-reflexive audience and critics. I think that gives them the autonomy as a human being. <laughs> they take some control back on. Uh, so would you tell us a bit more on how this, how this, um, drama or how this play takes play from the client's point of view based on your field work with the all your 
conversations with clients or um yeah definitely um I had a harder time to to have interview with the client, so my uh, observation is not um, by no means uh, the representative, but uh, the women I encountered and I got in touch, they had something at a moment they attended the host club. So uh, one of the women I mentioned um, in this talk and also in the book uh, chapter two, who dated to the um, um, uh, department store. For example, she has lost her husband and as a widow in Japan, she really struggled with raising two, um, two, two children. And at that time, she said she just needed male figure and just to repel unwanted um, calls or the troubles, just having a, a male figure in the household nearby was helpful. And on top of that, the male host she dated, quote unquote, cared her being and also her daughter. So as a, a family, they went to amusement park and then joining this family life uh, moments. Those are the things uh, this woman really needed to get going and um, move forward. Um, the, the host quit the job without telling her exactly why and when, and she stopped going to the club, although she gave half of the capital gain by selling her house to, to the host. And um, two or three later, I met her, and so I asked her how she felt about the whole thing, losing her home, and um, she's still living in the... Uh, Tokyo apartment and her daughters go to night schools because they can't afford the regular school. And I only where she kept the, the money she, she gained from uh, the sales of their home. But un surprisingly, she said, I need it. I need it, the support he provided. And uh, she didn't expect him to pay the money back or anything. She just let go. And that was pretty astonishing to me, but also made the sense people might regret what happened in the past. But if you click in that past, you are the one who suffered from the past. So I think her choice was letting go and move on to the next phase. Um, and so I heard similar stories, both from host and female size, from the people I was in touch. So they, in general, those I met and uh, stayed in contact, say that they, they needed that time and they gained something out of the experience, period. So that was um, um, my uh, finding from their cases. I, I think the, the needs, these needs, this from the female clients, I, you know, help maybe that's, that's why you, you were calling the term affect economy. Because I think in the in, at the end of the 
book, you went back to the politics on Japan's new liberal economy. And I'm just wondering if you can say a bit on how you develop this idea from this kind of staged seduction, the role seduction played in in the in the economy. Yeah, definitely. So um, my first book really made me think about consent. And as I purposely use the word uh, staged rather than ideology or structured or something, staged is something the setup is already um, there, but mostly the social actors are the one who decide whether or not to go to the stage and play or not. And once they go on the stage, usually they say that nobody forced to put them on the stage and do things. They decided to stay on the stage and uh, did what they needed to do. And even afterward, they, as I mentioned, kind of justify what they did, what happened to, to them without um, blaming for something larger, say the societal lack of uh, resource distribution, for example, or precarious labor market and so on and so forth. So eventually to me, this kind of stage is constantly set, not by particular individuals, it's more like um, discursively, discursive alignment, assemblage of political economy, legal system to support it, and then liberal, liberal rhetoric of individual freedom, autonomy, uh, entrepreneurship, creativity, and people's uh, motivation aligning with them go the play on the stage to get going. So after all, if this is a stage, say, set by structurally, but not particular individual that you can point to, it becomes more individual issues if something happens. So none of these host clients, for example, bring for the society or um, other things. Rather, they bring themselves or the society bring these people who were thoughtless or careless uh, or crazy to do this kind of thing. Um, but also there are people in the, a society where disparity is growing people who cannot really have dreams or hopes to get going in everyday life. And if that is a life, where can they turn themselves to? And uh, eventually, even if it's a risky business, it's something harmful down the road, they click on that tangible thing they could do at a moment. And so eventually this concept, the involuntary consent to me, yes, these people were not physically forced, but they didn't voluntarily consent to this kind of particular labor, particular kind of commercialization or romantic relationship, but they didn't have other chances or opportunities 
better opportunities than this, and they involuntarily consent to engage in this kind of business. And I see this kind of involuntary consent to precarious labor today in Japan beyond a host club. So my second book project focused on uh, uh, Japan's adult video industry, wherein young women involuntarily consent to their sexual labor for the dream of the fame or lucrative income or the fandom they could create while they could and most likely face social stigma, discrimination, and other forms of um, social harm. Um, so neoliberal economy is oftentimes understood as a political economic doctrine. And um, yes, it is uh, to, to me too, but then how to cope with that discipline, a uh, doctrine is um, people people's life in every day, those are the people who make sense of this this doctrine and also make their lives livable in their own way. And um, so my contribution out of this book project and towards the second book project is rethinking about involuntary consent rather than just focusing on individuals to identify whether it's a consent or coercion. Rather, we should pay attention to the structural aspect that that um, detaches individual consent from structural issues. And that's where my concept of the staged seduction to me is useful because the structural aspect is staged and it's really difficult to make it visible um, so that's, uh, that's where I came from. I'm moving to. I think you, you're really good at Kukiyomena because I was just about, yeah, we are actually, we are approaching the, the finish, uh, finishing. Well, because we've, yeah, I was about to ask about your new book, which will come out this summer. So that's that. Yeah, and I I think you you were on the spot to pinpoint to point out that yes, it's a structure, structural factors that need to be considered rather than what business that really are what and who's who are involved and it's it can it need to be abstracted to a higher level. A theory, a theorized level, saying, you know, this, 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 it is the structure that needs to be reconsidered, and because that's the backbone of the society that needs to be changed, rather than who should do what and exactly. what it should be. Yeah, yeah, usually the more the weak, socially marginalized, weaker people are the one who are blamed. Whereas, like uh, legal and political systems support the wealthier, the haves, who have legal knowledge, financial capacity, and also negotiate negotiation tactics. So, yeah, um, I hope that that, that because, like, the structural issue is gonna be more paid attention. 
I think I, yeah, I, that's really, I really enjoy talking to you today and thank you yeah, for thank you. being on the show today. So I, I think we have to say goodbye to okay. our audience as well. So, so goodbye. And, and thank I hope you for to, having me. Yeah, yes. hopeful, hope to, looking forward to your new book as well. Me too. Thank yes. you. <laughs> okay. Okay, so we just goodbye. Goodbye.